One of my um, uh, heroes, really, I suppose, is a uh, pastor in America, a church leader called uh, Tim Keller. Uh, Read his books, uh, watch his videos, uh, think about things, how he uh, thinks about things. Uh, He's been a a leader in the States for a number of years. He's a leader in the Presbyterian Church. And uh, before he was a pastor, he was a theological college lecturer, and they decided to come out of academia and go into church leadership. And his church is in Manhattan in uh, New York. Um, He was pastor of that church uh, in the days after September the 11th. And um, he tells a story of uh, thinking about what he would preach on the Sunday following uh, that terrible act of terrorism. And he uh, chose the reading which we've heard read this morning, uh, which is entitled Jesus Comforts the Sisters or Jesus Comforts Mary and Martha. And uh, in thinking about what I would speak on today, as I reflected on uh, the events in uh, Nice, I turned back uh, to that passage and turned to his sermon. So uh, the thinking this morning it is my own, uh, but it's strongly influenced by, uh, by him and his thinking. He has four points. I've just got three for you this morning. Situation is this. Uh, Mary and Martha are good friends of Jesus along with their brother Lazarus. And Lazarus has died. Jesus hears the news that Lazarus is ill. He's in a village uh, nearby, but he delays uh, coming to Mary and Martha's house. And in that delay, uh, Lazarus dies and is buried. He's laid in a tomb. And then... Uh, Four days later, Jesus arrives uh, in the village where Mary and Martha are grieving. So just note uh, three things that Jesus does, or three things that Jesus is in this encounter. The first thing that Jesus does is he weeps. I wonder if you've wept this week. As you've uh, seen the TV pictures of the horror on that French uh, street. As you've seen buggies uh, strewn across the road and heard uh, the stories of what happened. I wonder if you sat up anxiously on uh, Friday night as the Turkish coup unfolded and stories of soldiers uh, firing on civilians and then uh, helicopters being shot down uh, by planes. Jesus comes to where Mary and Martha are grieving. Comes to the village and uh, Mary asks him a theological question. Lord, why weren't you here? Lord, you could have stopped this. She asks him a question. And Jesus, well, Jesus doesn't give an answer. Jesus just weeps. All Jesus can do is ask a question himself. He says to Mary, where have you laid him? And we read that he is deeply moved. This reaction, I think, is surprising for two reasons, really. Because there are two things about Jesus entering into this situation that that Jesus has that makes him different uh, to us. And you might think his reaction will be different to our reaction. The first thing is this, Jesus Jesus understands what's happened. Jesus knows what would happen. 
Jesus knows that Lazarus would die. In fact, Jesus knows more than that. Jesus knows that Lazarus will be raised back to life again. He knows what he's going to do. He knows that in 10 minutes they will all be rejoicing. He knows that in a few moments Lazarus will be walking free from the tomb and the stench of death will be gone. Jesus knows what will happen and yet still he weeps. One of the things that people have been saying over this last week is, how could this happen? How could this happen? We don't know why it happens. Jesus knows why these things happen and still he weeps. The second thing that's different between us and Jesus is that he has power and we don't. And he has power to change things and we don't. Jesus can do something to resolve the tragedy of Lazarus' death. We see horrific images on our TVs, we see stories in the papers, we watch what's going on on the internet, and we feel helpless. We feel helpless like Mary and Martha. And Jesus isn't helpless. Colossians says, in him the fullness of God dwelt. Jesus isn't helpless. Of all the people who do not need to weep, Jesus is surely the chief. And yet still he weeps. He doesn't stop Mary, he doesn't stop Martha, he doesn't say, don't mourn yet, don't cry yet, this will all turn out for good, although it will. He weeps with them. Why does he weep when he knows that he will raise Lazarus from the dead? He weeps because he's perfect. He weeps because he is perfect love. He weeps because he cannot close his heart for those who are weeping, not even for ten minutes. He weeps because he enters into the suffering of those who weep. He doesn't say there's no need for all this crying. He weeps too. In Ecclesiastes, we read these words, words of wisdom from the court of Solomon. There is a time for everything. There is a time to weep and a time to laugh. There is a time to mourn and a time to dance. There is a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. There is a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Jesus knows when there is suffering, you weep, and he weeps too. This passage shows us the tears of Jesus. It also shows us uh, the anger of Jesus. You might think, well, where was the anger? I didn't see the anger in the reading. I didn't hear anger uh, in that reading. It's there in verse 33. It's there in verse uh, 38. The translation we have, it says, Jesus was uh, deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Uh, The original uh, Greek uh, there um, means Jesus uh, burned with anger. It's been softened up by our translators. It could actually mean to, uh, to roar or snort like an angry lion or a bull. 
So perhaps the best translation would be, bellowing with anger, he came to the tomb. Jesus is moved to tears at the sorrow of his friends. He mourns as they mourn, and he burns with anger. I wonder if you felt angry over the last few days. I wonder if you felt angry at the news of 25 children in intensive care in a hospital in France. Do if you felt angry at the news of another bomb going off in Baghdad and 300 being killed as they meet to celebrate the end of Ramadan. You should feel angry. God feels angry at that. Jesus, as the perfect expression of God, feels angry at that. There's a reminder in our reading here that God is not unmoved at the plight of the innocent and the suffering of those who have done no wrong. The prophets were often angry as they burned with the Spirit of God and the anger that God felt at the injustices of their day. This is one of those prophets, uh, the prophet Jeremiah, speaking uh, to the king. Hear the word of the Lord to you, king of Judah. You who sit on David's throne, you, your officials, your people, and those who come through these gates. This is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. Do not shed innocent blood in this place. But if you do not obey these commands, declares the Lord, I swear by myself that this palace will become a ruin. I will make you a wasteland. Your towns will not be inhabited. This is a God who gets angry. Who gets angry at the suffering of the innocent. Who gets angry in the face of injustice. I've seen lots of anger around this week. But also we need to note uh, a note of caution. Scriptures also say, in your anger, do not sin. I say, do not let the sun go down on your anger. And what does that mean? Well, it means there can be a good anger and there can be a sinful anger. There can be an anger that provokes you to action. A rage that makes you want to do something. An anger that fires you to speak out against injustice. To speak up on behalf of the innocent and the poor. An anger that makes you say, this is wrong and it needs to change. Or there can be an anger that's just a rage. An anger that's just angry at other people. People who are different to me people who come from a different place to me, people who have a different faith to me. There's an anger that expresses itself in a desire to destroy and to tear down and to wreck and to abuse. I've seen this week the anger of the 48% who voted to remain against the 52% who voted to leave. I've seen the angry 
Corbynistas angry at the Blairites and the Blairites angry at the Corbynistas. Seeing people angry that Gove uh, was sacked and angry that Gove uh, didn't get in. Seeing people wallowing in anger. People nurturing anger. People dwelling in anger. That's a completely different thing. A completely different thing. In your anger, do not sin. Jesus is angry not at God. Jesus is angry not at those who could have done more for Lazarus. Jesus is not angry that he didn't hear the message sooner. Jesus is just angry that his friend has died. And death is an imposter. And suffering has no place in his world and in his kingdom. We see the tears of Jesus and we see the anger of Jesus and then we see the power of Jesus. The story starts with tears and it moves through anger but it ends in power. Jesus declares, Lazarus, come forth and Lazarus does walk forth with grave clothes hanging from him. The story doesn't end with Lazarus uh, dead in a tomb and people uh, grieving and walking away broken and helpless. There is a change. There is a difference. There is death and that death leads to life. There is darkness and a light shines in that darkness and overcomes it. There's a great demonstration of the power of the good news of Jesus. There's a a physical enacting of the truth of who Jesus is. There's new life. There's a new start. There's new power. There's new hope. Christians confess that with him and in him, all things will one day be made new. And there's a demonstration of that newness here in the life of Lazarus. Lord of the Rings, one of the books that I like to read, looking forward to reading with my children. Uh, At the end of the story, uh, there's a book called The Return of the King. And uh, at the end of the story, uh, Sam is one of the hobbits, one of the the little adventurers, is reunited with uh, Gandalf. And Gandalf is the great wizard. They all thought that um, uh, Gandalf was going to die, but it turns out he's alive. This is what Sam says. Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. Of course, Jesus brings Lazarus back to life. But one day, Jesus himself will die. And that day is not far ahead in the Gospels that we read. Jesus will lay down his life, will lay it down upon a cross, and three days later, he will rise again. 
The Spirit of God will lift him up out of the grave. It's a sign, a foretaste of that day when Jesus will make all things new. When everything sad will be revealed as being untrue. That day when the great shadow has finally departed. The hope of the gospel is that we live in the light of that day when all things will be made new. That day when God will wipe away all tears. That day when there'll be no more weeping or mourning or sadness or pain. When death will be defeated and suffering will be ended. The good news is hope for tomorrow, but it's also hope for today. Tim Keller, who I uh, mentioned at the start, in his sermon he preached just days after 9-11, said this on our passage uh, this morning. He's actually commenting on the verses that follow on from where um, I stopped. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, his enemies said, now he's got to go. He's the most dangerous man there is. We've got to get rid of him now. Don't you think that Jesus knew that when he was raising Lazarus from the dead, yes, he did. Jesus knew what would happen and he made a deliberate choice. Jesus knew that the only way to interrupt Lazarus' funeral was to cause his own. The only way to bring Lazarus out of the grave was to bury himself. The only way he could get Lazarus out of death was for him to be killed. He knew that and brought him to life. Isn't that a picture of the gospel? We had a wedding here yesterday at St. Giles. Lovely, joyous occasion, as they always are, a real privilege uh, to be part of that service. And one of the things I said in that wedding, as I sort of say in uh, almost every wedding that I take, um, is I tell the story of Jesus at a wedding. Jesus in a, a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And at that wedding, Jesus performs his very first miracle. Uh, the raising of Lazarus is one of his last miracles. Uh, Jesus' first uh, miracle is at a wedding. And at that wedding, he turns water into wine. It's a symbol of transformation. It's a symbol of transformation that Jesus can bring. A symbol of transformation that Jesus can bring in the midst of any situation. The transformation that Jesus can bring in the midst of any life. The transformation that Jesus can bring into any uh, marriage. The transformation that Jesus can bring in any place, no matter how dark, how depressing, how seemingly hopeless. The hope of Christians is not just that one day all these things will be over. But in the midst of all these things, God can work miracles of transformation. The darkest time was the cross. And it was followed by the resurrection. It's when you're at your weakest that you discover the strength of Christ. It was when Paul was on his knees 
that he could say, I can do all things through Christ who is my strength. It's when you admit that you're weak and on your own you can do nothing that you discover the power of Christ. It's as you give yourself away that you discover the provision of Christ. It's out of your uh, generosity that you discover the wealth that is to be found in Christ. There was a remarkable moment, I don't know if you saw it, on the reporting of the uh, attempted coup in Turkey. We still don't know quite what's uh, happening there, what was going on. But there was the soldiers and they parked on the bridge, the bridge over the Bosphorus, and they parked their tanks and nobody could get by, uh, in or out, and civilians were massing, uh, massing around. And the, the, bridge, uh, the bridge was still lit up in red, white and blue, uh, the colours of France. That had been done as a, as a testimony to, um, or a kind of sign of solidarity for those who were suffering um, in Nice as, as uh, places all around the world were lit up in a similar way. It's a sign that what unites us is greater than what divides us. It's a sign that even in the midst of tragedy, there are those little seeds of hope, those little seeds of gospel, those little signs that God is at work. That death has been defeated and a light still shines in the darkness. Following the uh, shootings in America, folk queued around the block uh, to give blood. Following the sectarian violence in Syria and Iraq, Uh, community leaders have come together to say we've got to find a better way forward for our country. There's light in the darkness. There is hope even in the midst of despair. So it's a time to weep and if that's your time, uh, weep. There's a time to be uh, angry and if you feel that anger, do something with it. Let's hold on to as well the power of Jesus, the power of transformation, the one who brings life out of death. Let's live in the light of that day when all crying will cease, all eyes will be dried, and all wounds will be healed. In the name of Christ, amen.